Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. When it comes to measuring drought, scientists generally look at four numbers. On today's show, we hear from two scientists about what those numbers are saying right now and what the future may bring for the Colorado River Basin. And we hear about the recent rededication of one of the oldest synagogues in the Mountain West. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Drought has been in the headlines a lot this year, and climate change threatens to further shrink water supplies in the Colorado River Basin. But what makes a drought a drought? KUNC's Alex Hager spoke with two scientists who track the numbers that define dryness. They had some stark warnings about where those numbers are heading. When it's Brad Udall's turn to tell people how bad the drought is, the mood is rarely a good one. That's been the case since 2003 when he first started talking about climate change in the Colorado River Basin. I mostly got a lot of dirty looks. And since that time, I've started calling myself the skunk in the room. That's from a talk he gave at the law school in Boulder earlier this year. Udall is one of the region's foremost experts on water and the climate. And when I spoke with him, his assessment on where things stand is pretty bleak. I mean, you cannot look at these and not be concerned. Um, And, you know, the climate models tell us this is going to get worse. Um, There's every reason to believe it's going to get worse. It's gotten worse since the year 2000. Uh, The spooky thing is it seems to be getting worse at a faster rate. In terms of duration, uh, it's, it's not too many years from being probably equal to the worst drought in terms of, you know, like a 25-year period. That's Connie Woodhouse, who studies the history of climate at the University of Arizona. By looking at tree rings, she's able to learn about other dry stretches over the course of the centuries. And the thing that makes this one different, the factor that pushes this drought beyond the normal ebb and flow of the climate, it's the heat. That's different than our long droughts that we're seeing in the past. Um, Even though some of them were during warmer periods, they were not uh, as warm as the, as the temperatures that we're seeing today. When it comes to tracking drought, Brad Udall highlights four metrics, temperature, but also soil moisture, precipitation, and the amount of water in rivers and creeks. Right now, all of those indicators are heading in the wrong direction, and they're connected. I think the thing that leads the way here are these higher temperatures. I mean, that pretty clearly to me is the sort of proximate cause of all of these problems. And of course, those higher temperatures derive from greenhouse gas emissions by humans. So how hot is it? In the 21st century, average temperatures in the upper Colorado River Basin are more than two degrees warmer than the last century's average. And one of the big problems caused by that hot air, it dries out the soil, and that creates a feedback loop. When there's moisture in the soil and the sun beats down on that soil, that solar energy actually goes into evaporating water, which doesn't raise the temperature of the surface of the Earth. But once the soil moisture is gone, that same solar energy then warms the surface of the earth in a really profound way. Which in turn heats the earth, which dries out the soil, which heats up the air, and you get where this is going. Another problem? Dry soil is also thirsty. 
A recent study of soil moisture in the West showed that now is the second driest it's been in the last 1,200 years. When spring comes the next year and that snow goes to melt off, rather than running off into our rivers and creeks, it fills that soil moisture depletion that occurred the previous year. Last year, snowpack in the upper parts of the basin was at 90% of average. But because a whole lot of dry soil stood between the snow and the rivers, we only saw 30% of average runoff. And on the whole, rain and snowfall totals in the region have been steadily dipping for decades. Connie Woodhouse says that all combines to make this drought a special one. And then you add warming. Um, We're seeing things that are outside the range of what we've seen in the past, just because of that warming element. Brad Udall says some factors of human-caused climate change are not reversible, although it's within our technological capability to turn others around. But disagreements over policy and the very facts of climate change are standing in the way. Man, if we could get ordered and and centered and focused on solving this problem, we could solve it. That I know. But it's like trying to fight the Germans in World War II where half the army says, oh, they're not, they're our friends, they're not our enemy. That won't work with the threat of this size. And if we stay on this course, Udall says river flows in the Colorado River Basin could go down another 10 to 15 percent by the middle of the century. And at the same time, the number of people that rely on it for drinking and irrigation keeps going up. Alex Hager, KUNC. You can go more in-depth with this story at our website, KUNC.org. Hanukkah began at sundown on Sunday. And while Jewish people around the world are celebrating the Festival of Lights, what many might not know is that the word Hanukkah itself means dedication. As the story goes, the holiday commemorates the rededication of the Second Temple of Jerusalem after the ancient synagogue was destroyed. The Jewish people reclaimed it and rededicated it in order to preserve their religion and heritage. And all these years later, Temple Aaron in Trinidad, Colorado, is having a sort of rededication of its own. KUNC's Alana Schreiber has the story. While it was never destroyed, Temple Aaron was on the brink of extinction. In 2016, the 132-year-old synagogue was faced with limited funds and declining membership. That's when the for sale sign went up. But not long after, Neil Paul entered the picture. It was a long drive, three hours. It's like in the middle of nowhere. Could not imagine as we were getting closer that there's any possibility of there being any sort of an interesting synagogue or building there. Paul is a commercial real estate broker based in Littleton and the son of Holocaust survivors. As soon as he heard about a synagogue in trouble, he knew he had to go see it for himself. And we got there and it was just completely surprising. Once I walked in a building, went upstairs and saw the sanctuary, uh, it was hard not to fall in love with it. And I just, uh, I'd love to do everything possible to save it. But in order to understand why one of the oldest synagogues in the Mountain West needed saving, you first need to know more about Jewish history in Trinidad. And that began in about 1867 when Maurice and Isaac Wise opened a store on Main Street. And then uh, a little after that, the Jaffa Brothers Trading Company was established in 1872. Kim Grant is the director of Colorado's Most Endangered Places for Colorado Preservation Incorporated. 
And then the Jaffa brothers themselves, Sam, Henry, and Saul, built Trinidad's Jaffa Opera House in 1882. Sam Jaffa was elected Trinidad's first mayor. So you see very early on, there is this small but prominent merchant and professional class of primarily German Jews who came to Trinidad. And in 1889, Temple Aaron was built. It sits high on the hill overlooking downtown. And it's done in the exotic revival style, which um, harkens back to Moorish and Egyptian and Middle Eastern elements. It also includes up on the front facade two finials. They look a little bit like Torah scrolls. This, the sanctuary has a beautifully uh, hand-carved bima and its original wooden pews and beautiful colored glass or stained glass windows. It's really beautiful when light comes through those windows and bathes the sanctuary with, with color. At its height in 1917, there were about 250 congregants. Grant says those numbers steadily dwindled to a point where the local caretakers, the Rubin family, could no longer maintain it. My name is Randolph Rubin, commonly called Randy. Randy, who is part of the Rubin family, is one of the few surviving people who grew up attending Temple Aaron. He was born and raised in Raton, New Mexico, about 20 miles south of the Colorado border. It was basically my brother and myself were the only two Jewish kids in the Raton school system. We did not face any discrimination that I was aware of, but they just didn't know about Jews. But once a week... Randy, his brother Ron, and their parents drove up to Temple Aaron for services. There were no children, and everybody in those days was probably in their 50s or 60s. It was an elderly congregation. Everybody was an uncle and an aunt, so to speak. And I was bar mitzvahed in that temple, as was my son, and my daughter was bat mitzvahed there. So I, I have a very close relationship with it, not only physically, but mentally also. By 1985, Reuben's parents became the de facto caretakers of Temple Aaron. And in 2011, that job fell to him. That is until the synagogue ran out of funding from their original endowment from the son of a former rabbi. And we couldn't afford maintenance or upkeep for the temple and decided that we're at the end. And we put it up for sale, which was unpleasant. And it caused consternation and sleeplessness. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? Will there be a rescue? Well, there was no rescue in sight. That's when Neil Paul and Sherry Glickman got involved. There was no certainty at all in the beginning about whether it even made sense. Glickman is a medical writer and editor in the Denver area. As things kept moving forward, it became clear that to keep going, we needed some additional help. You know, we started having fundraising events, uh, both in in Trinidad and uh, up here in Denver. And people were really excited to hear about what we were doing. As interest increased, so did the strength of the board members. By this time, Sherry Glickman was the treasurer, Randy Rubin became president, and Neil Paul vice president. So there's been great support from the whole community. I mean, lacking there being a Jewish community. Great support from the townspeople, from the city, from the city council, from the mayor. Um, It's considered the third most important building that they're trying to save. And thanks largely to the support of both non-Jewish locals and Jewish people from around the country who donate to the temple and even fly in for events, Temple Aaron has seen a revival of sorts. In May, the temple hosted its first bar mitzvah in over 30 years, and over the summer, its first wedding in 10 years between Neil Paul and Sherry Glickman. 
It was really, really beautiful. Um, I feel very, very fortunate that we were able to have it there. It, there's a certain feeling inside the temple as well as just the beauty of it. And it's hard to describe. It was, it was very powerful to feel that love and support there. And according to Ruben, all of these new events have led to a new excitement that just a few years ago seemed impossible. This synagogue was not built to be temporary. We want to have it there for years to come and be able to be used. When we get donations from Maine, California, all around the country, because other Jewish people and non-Jews, I might add, see the energy that's being expended and they want to be part of it. But despite all of the changes, Ruben says that there are some things he hopes will always stay the same. This may sound a little maudlin, but there, there's an odor when I walk into that temple. And I remember from when I was a child, it's a distinct odor. It's not foul. It doesn't offend your olfactory senses. And it's still there. And I don't want that to ever leave. One way to ensure that is if the building gains historic landmark status. Temple leaders first applied three years ago. And after an exhaustive process, they're expecting to hear back in early 2022. Once again, Kim Grant. Well, there are only around 240 national landmarks in the United States, and that is really the highest status of work protection and preservation you can achieve. But of only seven of those are synagogues, and I believe only one of those is west of the Mississippi, one or two. So this would be a really special deal for Temple Aaron and for uh, the Trinidad community. But before anyone can get too excited, Ruben says they're celebrating a different milestone right now, a working heating system. It hasn't had heat for about seven years, and we haven't been able to have any events from probably October through April because it's just too cold in that building. And we've raised enough funds. Heat is being installed as we speak. And because the Festival of Lights falls during the cold weather season, Ruben says that in the future, he hopes to start having Hanukkah parties. Alana Schreiber, KUNC. You can see photos of the historic synagogue at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Colorado is known as a leader in developing sustainable buildings and energy systems, and the Front Range in particular is a growing hub for green technology research. A new center at the University of Colorado Boulder aims to take advantage of that existing momentum in the green tech industry and to catalyze new growth in the field locally. The Building Energy Smart Technology Center, or BEST Center, is funded by the National Science Foundation. It brings academic researchers together with industry partners to push the field forward. Monsef Crardi is a professor of engineering at CU Boulder and the director of the new BEST Center. Kyrie Baker is an assistant professor of architectural engineering at CU Boulder and is a faculty member at the BEST Center as well. We spoke with them in early October, shortly after the center launched. Monsef, I want to start with you. You are the director of this new center. Tell me a bit about the focus of it. What is smart technology and what does it have to do with green buildings? Yeah, very good question. So, so the, our center, which, as you mentioned, is a building energy smart technology, focus on the future, what we think of the buildings that will be smart, meaning adaptive to both the climate that we know is changing 
uh, as well as the need of power with the grid. And Kari will talk more about uh, the grid interactions between buildings and obviously the power generations. So we focus on adaptive technology, meaning technology that make the building relatively uh, resilient. And we usually use this term uh, sustainability and resiliency now together. Okay. And we're not just talking about individual buildings here, right? The research that you're talking about functions at the scale of entire communities. Uh, what does smart technology look like at a city level? Yeah. So at the city level and community level, there's building, but uh, there's also transportation. So our center will try to focus on those as well as a power generation. As you may know, we could now generate, even within building, uh, power, electricity, using solar, for instance. Okay. So our uh, center will focus on these aspects, meaning how to integrate energy efficiency with renewable, with actually buildings, as well as uh, uh, transportation. Now, the center is just getting off the ground, but I understand you already have some uh, really exciting research projects going on. Can you tell us about just a handful? Yeah, uh, I'll be happy to. Uh, as I mentioned, we focus mostly on adaptive technology for building. You're, I'm sure you know about the smart thermostat, for instance. Thermostat that actually regulate the temperature within space within your house depends on what your uh, desire and needs, as well as your schedules. Similar thing, we, we are trying to develop what we call smart uh, insulation, meaning wall that actually adapt to the environment. So for instance, when it's very hot outside, you want and very cold, especially in this climate in Colorado, we want very high insulation, meaning there's not much heat is lost between the outside and inside. Uh, but when it's mild, it's actually the opposite. We want actually heat to the cooler air to come inside to cool uh, at least the, the building, similar to clothing. We wear different clothes in the winter versus the summer. That's the idea we're trying to explore with what we call switchable insulation systems. So there is a lot of uh, system that we are trying to develop as part of the center now to adapt uh, at least to the buildings. Kyrie Baker, I want to bring you into the conversation. You're a faculty member at the center, and your research focuses on smart energy grids. First of all, can you kind of walk us through what that means exactly, a smart energy grid? Of course. So before we started thinking more about how buildings in the grid interacted, it was a very basic relationship. It would be you would switch on a light bulb and you wouldn't think about or care about where that energy came from. So that paradigm is changing. So now we're getting devices like renewable energy in the grid, electric vehicles, energy storage, and we're getting people that are starting to think more about their particular energy footprint. So the smart energy grids refers to all these components that are now able to communicate and work together along with consumers to help achieve a sustainable energy future. And I'm curious how you're bringing resources from this BEST Center to bear on your research. Well, a huge part of what consumes electricity in the grid are residential and commercial buildings. So in order to help transition to renewable energy, we need people to not only be aware of where their electricity is coming from, but also change the way that they use electricity. So this could be through smart thermostats. It could be through what's called demand response programs. So getting paid to shift when you use electricity. 
Um, and there's a bunch of other techniques that we're going to explore in the Best Center. We're speaking with Monsef Cardi and Kyrie Baker. They both teach engineering at CU Boulder and work with the new Building Energy Smart Technology Center there. I'm really curious about why Colorado is such a hub for green building and green technology. Why, why here? Colorado is such a unique, interesting place because not only do we have a ton of potential for solar and other green energy resources, but we also have, you know, the only national lab that solely focuses on renewable energy. We have a ton of companies that are starting up that are focused on green energy technologies and sustainability. The community um, itself within Colorado is really built for these, uh, these efforts. And so it's a great place to be right now if you're in green tech. Which brings me to my next question, which is kind of the flip side. You know, Colorado clearly impacts the industry and research, but how does this industry and research uh, impact life on the front range? I'm thinking economically, culturally, demographically. More energy efficient buildings are just gonna end up reducing electricity costs for consumers. So if we can think of ways to better condition the space, to better use clean power from the grid, we're going to start seeing cleaner air, cheaper prices, more comfortable spaces that we spend the majority of our day in, as Monsef mentioned. Yeah, to follow up with uh, Kyrie, just to let you know that uh, the uh, sustainable building industry now in the U.S. employ about 3 million. In five years, it's expected to be 4 million. The needs is there. Actually, our enrollment, for instance, in the architecture need program in the graduate level has doubled in the last two years, as well as in the undergraduate has been, has been increasing significantly in the last few years. There's a lot of demand. Every uh, week or so, I get uh, industry looking for some uh, workforce engineer to hire. Okay? Typically, our uh, graduates get at least a three to four offer. So there is a lot of potential for Colorado. Kyrie, do you think all of this research and industry activity that's going on in the green energy space is a draw for people, uh, perhaps students to the school? Absolutely. I can not tell you how many students who have come to me talking about how they want to make a difference in climate change. A lot of non-traditional students who have worked for years in industry come back because they want education on how to make buildings more energy efficient or renewable energy. So that's a huge draw. I've gotten tons of very, very high quality students um, here because of Colorado's resources in this area. What do we know about growth in the green technology economy, uh, you know, locally, but also nationally and internationally? It seems like we're at a, a moment, a precipice with the climate crisis where there's a lot of potential for growth in that space. Buildings and energy grids in general are a nexus for a lot of different green energy technologies. So Monsef mentioned transportation. We can now have electric vehicles that charge at home, which is primarily where people charge their electric vehicles. We can use bi-directional chargers to have your EV act as a battery for your home. So you could power your home during a huge winter storm where the main grid is out. And we're talking about community scale resources. So instead of people just installing solar panels on their roof, we're getting economies of scale where we can get community solar, people can start sharing energy. And it's really becoming this climate revolution. Whereas before we used to just think of buildings as this place to sleep and you know, work during some other times of our lives. I'd like to wrap up by asking each of you, and I'll start with you, Monsef, when you envision a green energy efficient community, what does it look like? Obviously, energy efficient community 
for us, meaning a combination of uh, smart technology as well as on-site power. So we combine energy efficiency as well as what we call adaptability to renewable energy. So for me, the future of building as well as community is that it will be reliable on itself, meaning in terms of at least the energy, it can uh, generate on-site all the energy it needs. I think a green community to me really means the ability for the community to be flexible and resilient. So right now, communities are pretty static. We're just consuming power, drawing it from the grid. If the grid goes out, too bad. When it needs to be flexible is on-site generation, as Mons have said, sharing resources, being able to have consumers that are knowledgeable about what in their house or building consumes the most electricity and how they could potentially you know, change the way they use that to save money and to help the environment. So that flexibility is really going to be key in that dynamic nature of the community rather than just a static thing. Monsef Cardi is a professor of engineering at CU Boulder and the director of the new Building Energy Smart Technology Center. Kyrie Baker is an assistant professor of architectural engineering at CU Boulder and a faculty member at the Best Center. Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tomorrow, we hear three inside perspectives on the current state and future of early childhood education in Colorado. And during the month of December, we're going to take an in-depth look at Colorado's congressional districts, including the newly created 8th District. And we'd love your help with that. Do you have questions about the way the state's congressional boundaries have been drawn or about how effectively the system represents the people of Colorado at our nation's capital? Let us know what you're curious about. Send us an email at coloradoedition at KUNC.org or tweet your question to us at KUNC. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.